Hello and welcome to the opening bell, the boxing news podcast. My name is Matt Christie. Um, Tris Dixon is over in New York somewhere. Um, he is covering the Hall of Fame celebrations this weekend while also making a pit stop at Madison Square Garden to take in the Sergio Martinez-Miguel Cotto rematch. It's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. Uh, and I'm joined, delighted to say, by John Denon. Um, you enjoy these podcasts, don't you, John? I love it. It's brilliant to be let out. <laughs> okay, we've got quite a lot of ground to cover. Um, it would make sense to start with um, the Carl Frotch-George Groves rematch, which it seemed like a hell of a lot of the country was watching last Saturday. You were lucky enough to be there. I was at home, like the vast majority, watching it on my television. Just describe what it was like to be at such a monstrous event. It was just surreal. You know, but you had to sort of pinch yourself to, you know, when you see that number of boxing fans all in one place, you know, the noise was so loud, uh, the staging of it all, the way they did everything was brilliant, the undercard was perfectly enjoyable, but then just the main event, all the build up to it. It was just, uh, it really was a spectacle. And it was one of those things where it was uh, just an absolute privilege to be there. Well, let's, let's, let's talk a bit more about the event and then we'll move on to the fight. Um, it, they, they really, they had to deliver Matchroom with that show, didn't they? And it's fair to say that they did. I mean, tell us a little bit about what it was like. Um, I mean, when we go to shows, say the main event is due to start at 10 which is 10 p.m., 11 p.m. or whatever, um, when you kind of amble into the arena normally at about six, it's fairly quiet for a while, isn't it? What was it like when you first took your seat? Yeah, well, I mean, just the first thing that struck you, even though there were a lot of empty seats when I arrived sort of an hour or so before the first fight on the undercard, it was still breathtaking because you step out and you see just the size of the arena well, the size of the stadium, yeah. it was massive. But, you know, at 6.30 when Anthony Joshua was on, there was quite a lot of people in their seats, obviously spread around. So, you know, if, if there were like ten or 15,000 people there, it would have looked like a, like a smattering because the stadium's so big. But that was, there was still a lot of people there, sort of surprisingly so, because I wasn't expecting the vast majority to show up until until the main event but it just shows that people wanted to get there early wanted to sort of savor the event enjoy it all then you know a few fights in by the time James DeGale was on it was really filling up and there just you know so many bodies like milling around the longest queue for a toilet you've ever seen <laughs> um, which was tough for me I can imagine yeah um, and then it was just you know, the, the the sound system was really loud as well. So every entrance was great. And you could really sort of hear and feel the roar of the crowd by uh, by the time we were getting to, to the big fights towards the end. You speak of the entrances. Um, it was quite interesting to me, and I quite like it. I've, I'm, I'm a big fan of really going all out like that. I know it's, you know, UFC have kind of done it a little bit like that for a while where they really do make a song and dance about the fighters entrances and it really does have some showbiz and razzmatazz to the occasion um, in Germany yeah I was going to say and they, they do really with the Klitschko's as well don't yeah. they do you do, it may meet a bit of derision though in, in, in some quarters who you know prefer things to, to, 
to be like they always have been. But do you think we need that level of uh, kind of showmanship and, and, and showbiz really to take the sport or to keep the sport at that level? Yeah, I, I love all that stuff. The sort of, you know, you've got the tension before the fight starts. It's great to stretch it out a bit more. You know, it's when a boxer takes his time walking to the ring. I think the fans and the crowd love it as well. It's great, you know, it's a great moment. Start cheering and screaming your yeah. head off. You know, in this one, when there are fireballs going off in the air, like from where I was sitting, we were all sort of packed in, so I couldn't actually see the bus driving Groves in, but I could feel the heat of the fireballs in my face. (laughs) 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 I I love all that stuff. You know, like in Germany, when when Felix Stern makes an entrance, it's classic. They have a sort of a film montage. Yeah. For the last one, I think he was, or for the, the one against Barker, he was mining his way up from a, I don't know why he was in the underground mine in the film and then he sort of emerged in front of lots of lights and um, all that jazz it did seem that that, that Groves had spent a bit more time planning his entrance than Frotch had his and actually if you do read um, the interview with Carl Frotch that the editor Tris Dixon um, uh, did on the Sunday after the fight um, that Groves was spending a bit of time on the day of the fight rehearsing his um, rehearsing his entrance, um, whereas uh, Frotch kind of came and just seemed to just stand on on, on a pedestal and and kind of do a bit of shadow boxing, <laughs> which at the time actually when I was watching it, um, I did wonder if if that would affect his concentration because surely he's never done anything like that before. I remember the the, the you know arguably his biggest fight prior to this certainly in this country would have been the Kessler rematch and. The, the ring walks were, were dramatic, but they were not as drawn out. And there was a concern that perhaps that Frotch might kind of lose some of the concentration. Because he's made no secret of the fact that, you know, the, the, the showy stuff is not for him. You know, he is very much, you know, the self-proclaimed caveman of the 21st century. Um, what was going through your mind during the respective ring walks? Um, well, I didn't, have, I didn't have a greater view of them because they were so far away from where they were coming in. Um, but I see, it's interesting, I see what you mean, that Groves sort of, well, he made the most of it, didn't he? He took his yeah. chance. It's, it's weird. <laughs> George Groves kind of lived in reverse, as in he had his victory parade on a bus on the way in and then lost. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know how much you can read into that. I mean, it's just Frotch's style, isn't it? He's yeah. Not, he's not a showman. He wants to get stuck in, and whereas yeah. Groves really embraced the whole thing and just made the most of it. You know, and, and why not? You know, are you ever going to fight at Wembley Stadium again? It's it's a it, you know it could be a once in a, in a lifetime event for George Groves. So why not just take it all in, parade it on a bus? It's true. Do you think though that the kind of with hindsight, obviously Groves lost the fight, lost it emphatically in the end. Um, he wasn't boxing badly up until until you know the point of of the 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 final explosion. But do you think that Perhaps Groves now, after you know nearly a week has passed, that he can look back and think that maybe I spent a bit too much time on things like planning ring walks, on making complaints about Wayne's and things like that, on everything for a reason, trying to get in the head of Carl Froch, 
rather than doing what seemed to come so naturally first time around. Yeah, as in you think he might have sort of invested too much yeah. time or too yeah. much energy in all yeah. these extraneous things that weren't really relevant. Possibly, and you know, maybe it's a, this is a lesson that he'll be more, more, more focused, but you know, George Groves did a lot to sell that fight the way he was sort of hard to understand sometimes, totally unpredictable. He he drummed up a lot of the interest in that. You know, it allowed Frotz just to keep his head down and get on with things. And you know, boxing is, you know, it's show business as well as a as well as a sport that you've got to sort of, you've got to sell it to the fans. You know, Groves took all that on. Um, I think, may, you know, maybe. Maybe in future he'll have now he's with a new promoter as well. Maybe we'll have more of a team behind him, more sort mm. of support for those other things, um, so they can sort of shoulder some of the burden because he's been doing sort of a lot of these, these things alone. Like he didn't have a promoter when when making this fight, he sort of handled it all himself. So I think maybe if those pressures are stripped away, he can get back to focusing on his boxing. That might be that might be good for him in the long run. But it's hard to tell because you you know you don't really know what go what goes on in someone's training camp unless you're you're right there day in day out. These may be things that you know he might have done what worked for him. Yeah, yeah. and he was boxing well, wasn't he? I thought until the sort of decisive blow, there was there, you know there was nothing in the fight. It was a close technical fight. No, absolutely. I think um, I think at the time of the stoppage. Um, I think I had Frotch a point up. I think you could easily make a case for Frotch being two points up. You could make a case for Groves being two points up. It was that kind of fight. It was very, very tentative stuff. And whatever both were saying in the first place about they were going to walk through the other, it certainly was. Evidence was there of a lot of mutual respect. But going back to what you were saying of um, uh, the fact that he has now, you know, he signed this deal with Sowlands, which again... Again, with hindsight, there was whispers of it being curious timing bef when, it, when it was actually made in a week before the fight or whatever. Um, you know, perhaps that wasn't the best time to be negotiating a promotional deal with a fight just around the corner. However, it may have looked like a masterstroke if Groves had gone out there and, and done what he thought he was going to do. But do you think, I mean, let's, let's see what the, if, you, if we compare to what the Sowlands have done with David Price, for example, who is fighting on undercards, um, out in Europe, um, I can I can certainly see that that will be beneficial for David Price because I believe his two losses to Tony Thompson were far more damaging, probably to his psyche and his reputation than this mm. loss for George Groves. How will George Groves cope? Do you think if he is advised to go down that route to start rebuilding with eight rounders, ten rounders, and what have you? After clearly. Th absolutely loving the spotlight of being in this kind of event yeah yeah I, I mean i i think he'll bounce back and obviously having one or two lower key fights is, is is a good idea to ease him back into it but you know he is young i think he's got a very bright future ahead of him and like i agree with you you know david price losing to, to tony thompson you know who who he was expected to beat and losing in the way that he did is a much more sort of damaging yeah. psychologically and you need to sort of come back more slowly from it whereas Groves has been a close fight like he says made a mistake and paid the price for it against you know an, an experienced and extremely res well respected champion you know I think he can bounce back from that pretty quickly you know I'd quite like to see, I'd like to see George Groves 
back in big fights as soon as possible. I don't think you want to throw him straight into a hard fight after two back-to-back defeats, but as soon as possible, get him back to the back to the big stages. I mean, it's interesting. They've got Arthur Abraham and now Mikel Kessler has also announced his intention to return. Um, there are some big fights there for him um, to to really achieve the ambitions. He is only 26. You say you'd like to see him back in big fights fairly fairly quickly. What sort of time scale are you talking this time next year and his next fight maybe challenge Arthur Abraham? Or you know, what would be ideal for you if you were in charge of this George Groves machine, in which direction would would it go? Maybe maybe a couple of uh, lower level fights you know, to, to take up the rest of this year and then at the start of next year, get him in with a big one, get him in for another another world title. And by that stage, you know, it'll be interesting to see if Abraham has clung onto his belt or if someone's, you know, picked pick that off him. It'll be interesting to see where James DeGale is because he should, you know, he's due a world title fight. Mm. He's certainly good enough to win one. And then I think that's a big sell. Gross DeGale rematch. They do hate each other. So, yeah. And, and that kind of thing really helps make a, you know, it really adds a layer of intensity to a fight and also helps sell it to, to the public. Okay, let's, um, one more, one more um, question about Groves before we move on to um, the hero of the piece. Um, is there a realistic danger that Groves will not be the same again? Let's not forget how much he put into this rematch and you know he was very very convincing when he was saying that he was going to win um he really believed it um that level of confidence when it's shattered is often very very hard to repair is there a danger that george groves will never recover from this defeat i suppose i suppose there is in the at least his first defeat to froch there are all those questions about it that he could sort of, you know, he could feel like in some sense he was a moral victor, whereas this defeat was, uh, you know, as emphatic as they come. But yeah, he, he seems like a resilient type to me. He does seem strong mentally, so I'm not sure it'll it'll entirely burst his bubble. And it was interesting, even though he sort of he hit he hit the canvas so heavily with his leg folded under him mm. so you knew he was out as soon as he sort of got himself together again just instinctively he was trying to trying to get up which is a sign that he's got he's got a lot of heart and you can see but you know we've seen Amir Khan come back from a heavy defeat uh, Vladimir Klitschko really rebuild himself I just don't see why George Groves can't I just don't think it's it's the end of the road for him at all no I think I still think he's got a future I still think he can win titles okay let's move on to Carl Froch um, kind of despite winning that first fight he almost came out came out of it as you know it was his reputation that that plummeted um, has he restored that now with his victory yeah he's right back at the top isn't he yeah um you know because the fight wasn't like the first fight was so exciting it was you know the best fight i've I've been ringside for the best fight i've i've seen live it was brilliant this fight wasn't like that it was cagey they're both quite restrained they'd really learned their lessons from the first one were wary of each other 
but the fact that Froch sort of answered all the questions with a with a one punch knockout, I think he's yeah he's you know if he if he did retire now that would just be the perfect ending. He would be going out right at the very top of his game in the very in the biggest event there could be with the ultimate respect from well from boxing fans and presumably the general public as well. What is it that makes Carl Froch so effective? To my mind, he is one of the top five post-war British fighters um, with everything that he's achieved. I think casual fans may not be aware of, of everything he has achieved since he's been at the top of the super middleweight division or rather near the top of the super middleweight division. But but you you do when he fights, it's not like a faultless display. Very rarely does he turn in a faultless display. And I had while I was watching at home, there were a couple of friends with me. One of which um, had probably never seen Cole Froch fight before. Doesn't know a great deal about boxing. I hasten to add, but in the early rounds, he was just. Well, Froch is going to lose. He looks very clumsy, doesn't he? He's leaving himself open, isn't he? You can see why opponents might look at Froch and think, oh, I could beat him. But what is it that makes him so effective? Well, yeah, exactly. Because just like, like you say, he doesn't have the smoothest style, does he? Um, you know, he's known for his toughness, and he is, he is a tough, tough man. So he's got a good chin. He's resilient. You know, he's unafraid to to take on any challenge who's for everyone and he's also unafraid to sort of you know go into those dark places in a fight like to pick himself up, up you know up off the canvas to push him you know to push himself as hard as he can um so the elements that he's got the toughness the resilience the determination probably un he's underrated technically because you know his his jab was yeah. his out jabbing yeah. groves at times even yeah. though he holds you know, it's unorthodox the way he holds it so low. Mm. So he knows what he's doing with his punches. Um, you know, and he's got power. So he does have, it's, it's sort of deceptive. Mm. And especially when he's, lead, you know, when he, when he leaves that lead low, people try and go for, you know, go for him because they think he's open and they get themselves into trouble. So um, he's got, he's got all those sort of world-class elements underpinned by that grit and determination. Where next for Carl Froch? He spoke in the immediate aftermath of his desire to go over to Las Vegas, and you can completely understand why you'd want to do that. Um, is that the right thing to do? Or now he has kind of probably in doubled, tripled, you know, even more perhaps his fan base overnight, more or less, with this win against George Groves. Would he be better off kind of attempting to, to have another fight like that. You could imagine Carl Froch, James DeGale, selling very, very, very well in this country. Again, you have another character in James DeGale who would have little trouble in marketing the fight. Or should he go and follow his dreams in Las Vegas? Yeah, from my point of view, just as a, an observer, I'd like to see Froch DeGale. I think that's a big fight over here. It'd be nice to keep the big British fights going. You know, he wouldn't sell out Wembley, but it's probably the next best thing, the next biggest fight after that. And I think at the moment, you know, DeGale's been very respectful. Um, 
so you'd think, oh, it doesn't seem like a massive sell, but I think once you put those two characters together in a press conference to, anu- to announce it, the, the sort of the clash of personalities should really ignite interest in the fight. But I think to win that, Frotch is going to have to be ultra motivated again, just to you know keep himself at that at that level of performance. And he just doesn't seem too fussed about fighting DeGale. I think on, on his, from his point of view, on a personal level, he's done it all so he can do what he wants. And if fighting Las Vegas is the one thing he wants to do, then that would become, become well, not the only option for him, but maybe the right option for him. And if he fights in Vegas, it's probably got to be Chavez Jr. or someone who's going to draw a crowd there. It'd be sad, though, because he's probably only got you know he's what 36 about to turn 37 yeah even Carl Froch can't go on forever so he's got one or, you know one or two fights left you know I'd like to see big British fights rather than him finishing up on on a, on a you know away from home but then he's probably got the beating of Chavez Jr Could, you know maybe if there's a decent amount of American interest fair bit of British interest it's still a big fight but not the one I'd like to see. No, no, I, I agree with you. And I think that even though, you know, Froch is as professional as they come in, you know, in, and, and people saying that his preparation for the first gross fight was poor. It was only poor by his standards. It wasn't like he was taking any shortcuts or anything like that. It just wasn't, you know, he wasn't mentally up for it. Is there a danger that if he does go over and fight Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., even though he will thoroughly no doubt enjoy the occasion of being out there in Las Vegas that he will struggle to replicate the focus that he had for George Groves whereas he might be able to get that back as a case of national pride um, and perhaps annoyance at some of DeGaulle's antics if he was to go that road and fight the Olympic champion yeah I think so I think so I'll tell you what I'd like to happen Froch fights DeGaulle Someone wins, maybe Frotch. Paul Smith goes over to Berlin, fights <laughs> Abraham. A miracle underdog triumph. Nicks the belt there, comes back, fights Frotch in the end of 2015, loses. Callum Smith comes up to avenge his older brother. <laughs> Probably doesn't win. I don't know. That's what I'd like to happen. But yeah, I. I'd like those big fights that everyone's So your dream in. fight is, is Carl Froch, Paul Smith? <laughs> or both. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, well, I didn't, didn't see that one coming. <laughs> didn't see that one coming. But yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. Will he, be, will he be as driven to beat Chavez Jr.? If he just wants a fight in Vegas, then will he be going over there sort of satisfied that, you know, that you know, he's there, he's done it? See, I mean, Frotch is a pretty, he's a competitive beast, isn't he? He's probably, yeah. He probably would bust up Chavez Jr., but I don't know. I th- I th- I th- to me, at the moment, I think he would beat Chavez Jr. handily. Yeah. Um, I, I, too, would prefer to see, I think, a James DeGale fight. Um, and I've always thought that DeGale's style would give Frotch some real real problems to me that's a far more intriguing fight but from Frotch's point of view I think he's earned that right as you said to 
if you wanted to go the Las yeah. Vegas route, then go the go the Las Vegas route. But plus, the crowd wouldn't the crowd there? There'd be a lot. It'd be Mexican mostly, wouldn't it? Supporting yeah. Chavez, you know. So I think he deserves to have the crowd on his side for once, because he's been up against it sort of the whole way through until he yeah until really he knocked out Groves. Frotch has always had um, strong support. However, it has never rivaled, say, Ricky Hatton-esque support. If Frotch was to fight Chavez Jr. or, I don't know, whoever out in Las Vegas, what kind of levels of, of, of British support do you think we'd see over there in America? I mean, would it be anything to rival, you know, the, the Hatton Wonderlands that we've seen in the past? I don't think it would be, you know, that that vast number, that, that huge number of people going over, probably a respectable amount, like who mm. wouldn't want to go to Las Vegas? It's a good question. Um, so maybe echoes of those Hatton nights, but I don't think quite quite the same. And I also think that he struggled to get an opponent like Hatton was facing, you know, Hatton against Pacquiao, yeah. Hatton, you know, even Castillo, Hatton against... Um, Floyd Mayweather, um, Chavez Jr. Although he's got that wonderful name, um, he's not. You know, he's barely for me a top ten super middleweight. He wouldn't. I'd, I'd, the, the fight wouldn't have that razzmatazz, which is, I think, a little bit of a shame, really, for Froch. Um, right. Something just, 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 just quickly, we'll talk about. We put up heroes and villains, which is um, weird and wonderful weekly. Um, column I suppose you'd call it or blog that we all take part in that, that, that goes up at the end of every week on boxingnewsonline.net and one of the questions this week was and it was put out to the whole team um, who has had the better career Carl Froch or Joe Calzaghe and it is a tough question to answer isn't it what was your immediate reaction when reading that question well yeah how do you, it's, yeah it's actually really hard to answer because you probably say Kazagi's the better boxer um has had some really you know and he's unbeaten had those sort of fantastic defining wins but then Froch's sort of accomplishments he's gone around and fought everyone yeah he's lost a couple of them but um He's just, he's had an amazing career just in terms of the level of opposition he's fought, the exciting fights he's been in, and, you know, fighting in front of a packed Wembley Stadium. So even though if you had a fantasy matchup, you'd pick Calzaghe to beat Froch, you could argue that Froch has had the better career because he's been absolutely fearless in, in, in what he's, he's gone out to do. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the guys that, and it's been spoke about so many times, but the guys Froch has fought back to back to back. Perhaps you can take Yusef Mack out of that, but if you do, then you've got, you have got a run of opponents that Calzaghe never had. However, Froch hasn't got a win over Bernard Hopkins okay. on his resume. Um, and, and I think that we'll probably forever put Calzaghe above Carl Froch is the fact that he retired undefeated and you know there's very 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 few world champions that have gone through an entire career um, ruled at the top and then quit at the top it's it kind of doesn't happen in boxing which is why it's so noteworthy when it does and I just think that will forgive um, 
you know, a lot of Calzaghi's, a lot of faults in Calzaghi's career, the fact that he didn't lose in the same way that, you know, Rocky Marciano, 49 and 0, he's regarded, you know, rightly or wrongly, as one of the top five heavyweights of all time when you could make an argument for, for him being a lot lower. But, you know, it's... And in the same way, if Mayweather, I think, was to retire undefeated, even though he hasn't fought the Pacquiao's, he didn't fight Cotto at his peak, he didn't fight Paul Williams at welterweight, um, history will be very, very kind to him. Yeah, but the only way for him to earn that place in history now is to stay undefeated, Mayweather, that is. Yeah, absolutely, can't yeah. afford to lose, because no, that's his no. place among the greats, would yeah. be that he was unbeaten and, and looked unbeatable. Yeah, 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 exactly. I exactly. suppose counting against Froch, not just these two losses, but the loss to Andre Ward was was comprehensive. Yeah. So he's never been... The, even though he's had that fantastic career, he's never been the best in his, his division. No, and that's... Like he was. And, and, and Kawasaki also fought a light heavyweight. Um, I think the only way he could do that in terms of a legacy really would be to, to kind of take take on Andre Ward for a second time and and beat him in a rematch, um, which would, I think, you know, enhance his legacy a, a ludicrous amount. Okay, let's move on. Quickly, let's move to the undercard. We spoke about James Legal. I thought, watching on the telly, um, that perhaps the Paul Smith winner side, which is, what, going back 2010 now, 2011? I think it was December 2010, that fight against Paul Smith, which I thought James Legal looked like a dead cert at that point to go on and rule the world. This, for me, was his best performance in a long time. Yeah. What did he look like? At ringside yeah he just looked brilliant he, he just he was so fast it was hard to sort of keep up with what he was doing and the fact that he he just obliterated Gonzalez yeah it made him look very very good indeed I was surprised in the, the Gonzalez only came over I think you know like 2am on the Wednesday before and you need about an hour you need a day per hour time difference yeah. to get over that so mate you know I'm really surprised they came over so late I mean, so maybe he wasn't at his sharpest, but you, you can't deny the job De Gale did on him. He looked, he looked sensational, probably the best win of his career. Okay, no so... disrespect to Paul Smith. No, well, you know, you've, <laughs> already, you've already... I've already explained my dream fights. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay, so let's move down the bill a little bit. Um, Kevin Mitchell... Did we see the best and worst of Kevin Mitchell? It was a bit of a rickety performance, I yeah. thought. But yet again, showed he's got balls of steel. Um, he looked to me, I think it was, was it the end? What, what round did it finish? The 11th? I think so, yeah. The end of the 10th, when I think he fell, I think he fell from a slip or something, he looked exhausted. And at that point, the way I was scoring it, or the way I was watching it, was that whoever wins these next two rounds probably wins the fight it was that close and from nowhere Mitchell just came out and stopped him yeah was has that kind of I mean everybody who fought in the undercard would have been overshadowed by the main event obviously but I haven't seen too much in the way of analysis about Kevin Mitchell's um, performance so give it to me <laughs> yeah well he showed like you say he pulled it out of the bag he showed he's got got the venom when he needs to I think it hasn't got a lot of attention because he scuppered it the morning of the fight when he didn't make his check weight. And that just means that win would have put him in a mandatory slot for a world title shot. 
and he's just lost all that so it really sort of undermines the whole fight and then it was a difficult fight for him um, that guy looked like a like an absolute unit yeah um, but you know so Mitchell was having difficulty with him but showed he, when he needs to he can pull out that sort of you know that, that cruel finish we've seen him deliver before what happens now um, in terms of his career or getting to that world title fight I don't know I think that's uh, a negotiation job for Matram they've got to try and pull something out of the bag I think they think probably think they could still get the Vasquez fight but we'll see yeah, it's um, it's you know, it's you know the the check weights and what have you. You know, it's something that the the IBF are really really big on. And you know, I haven't seen the new IBF ranking since that fight, or if there's been any compiled. I shouldn't imagine there has been as yet. But all I can imagine they'll do. I wouldn't imagine they'll throw them out the rankings. I think just perhaps that fight won't. It won't be an eliminator. It won't affect the next set of rankings. It'll yeah. be almost as if it hasn't happened. Um, on the evidence, taking out kind of. You know the, the the situation of the whole check weight out of it um, is Kevin Mitchell likely to win a world title? I'm not sure because when he's he's sort of those big fights he's had before against Ricky Burns and Michael Cassidis, he's sort of crumbled in the you know in the, in, in the heat of those moments. So. I think he can certainly fight his way to earn a shot at a world title. I think it's going to be hard for him to win one. He's sort of, he's really got to you know, turn a lot around. But I don't begrudge him a, a shot at a title. Okay, we are kind of spent absolutely ages banging on about this. Uh, we do need to move on to what's going on this weekend. But very, very quickly, Jamie McDonnell, good to see him back as world champion. Yeah, yeah. And he suddenly, you know, he's not a big puncher. He suddenly dug out that yeah, Turk from yeah. nowhere. Good to see him back as a world champion. Can't forget that Anselmo Marino is the super champion yeah, exactly. of that. So that's not, doesn't make it a clear situation. Um, I still would like to see him fight the winner of Hall Butler this weekend. Yeah, we'll move on to that. I, know, I thought that, I, that was quite a nice segue into it, wasn't it? We were briefly going to talk about Anthony Joshua, but I mean, what is it to say? Yeah, he's good. Punched he's him good. right in the face. Yeah, and basically, don't attack him. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, leg, fair play to him. He was like, right. He caught him with a shot. I've got, my, my chances here are slim yeah. and non, so I'm just going to, I'm going to go for it here. Yeah, he went for it. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's a good life rule of thumb. Don't attack Anthony Joshua. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Let's move on then to now. You mentioned there Stewie Hall, um, Paul Butler, which has kind of much like the frog. We do a bumper podcast and just go on for ages. No, I need, I need, I need to get. On, I need to get on a train soon. I need to get, and I need the toilet. So you know, let's 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 do this for about another what ten minutes. Okay. So just Hall spending time with you, Matt. Who doesn't? Okay. So Hall. Um, Hall. War, no, Hall Butler, good, good British fight on paper. Um, we could talk about the issues, about the fact that Butler has done absolutely nothing in the bantamweight division, really, to merit a shot at the world title. We could talk about the fact that McDonald was stripped because he didn't fight the Mandarin contender very shortly after he'd won the title and Hall has been allowed now to fight two non-deserving challenges. We could talk about that. We won't. We'll talk about the fight. Um, 
for me, it's a good fight against, you know, the, you, you've got the promise of Butler. You've got the experience now of Hall. Um, but Butler is quite an overwhelming favourite at this point. Is that fair enough? I think it's fair that he's favourite because he's, you know, a stylish boxer, isn't he? And he, you know, he looks like his sort of quality boxing. You'd favour that over the sort of strength and, you know, the strength and power of Hall. But Hall, even though the fight with Martin Ward lasted no time at all, I thought he was, you know, he was looking good there for for, mm. for, for as long as it went on. And his win over Malinga was it was that was fantastic sort of rocky stuff. So it's not by it's going to be a really hard night for Butler, I think, especially when it gets to the second half when he's still got Stewie Hall powering in on him, who who isn't as slick but you know knows what he's doing in there can really fight. Um, I think that's what makes it an interesting fight. So I think you say Butler's not deserving, and I see what you mean, but I think it's. You know, it's worthy. It's a, it sort of deserves it in, because it's going to be a good fight. Okay, okay, all right. No, that's that's fair. I, I think it is going to be. I think it is going to be a good, a good fight, and it is fascinating. When I I wrote the preview for this week, and I was kind of, um, in and ahhing about it. Um, I think you can really make a case for for Hall kind of wearing him down. And I remember Butler, and it's a while back now, maybe two years ago, three years ago. Um, in a 10-rounder at Bethnal Green at your call, having some real issues with Ashley Sexton's just non-stop energy. Um, so I think, you know, it's going to be interesting. I think if Butler if Butler comes out on top um, and he, you know, he wins convincingly, we could have a new star on the scene. If Hall wins, however, I think it's about time that we got behind him as a world champion because I think he's kind of missed out on that a little bit you know, for one reason or another over the last few months. Anyway, let's move on to New York, Madison Square Garden, world middleweight title, Sergio Martinez, Miguel Cotto. What a fight. Yeah. You know, what a fight. you got two guys. you got Martinez, absolute gentleman. Cotto, absolute gentleman. Two warriors as well. Um, you've got that. Okay, it's not the same. It's not in the same. <coughs> it's not in the same spot that it used to be, Madison Square Garden, but it's still got the history attached to it. Um, in New York, there's a lot of ghosts of boxing past floating about the place, and it's wonderful to see if you look hard enough for them. Um, but you know how? <laughs> to me, this fight is one of the, the most. You know, it's, it's one of the most anticipated matchups of the year so far. You can argue they're both a little bit past it. But, you know, to me, it's fascinating. What, what's, what's your take on it? I agree with you 100%. You know, they both may be a little bit past it, but they're both a little bit past it together. So, that they're, you know, it's well matched in that sense. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a brilliant fight. I think it's hard to call a winner of it mm. because, you know, you've got to like Martinez's speed and skill and the fact that Cotto struggled with southpaws. But then... You know, Cotto brings the heat, doesn't he? He's going to have that huge crowd behind him. He's chasing history because he's trying to become yeah. Rico's first full-weight world champion. Um, yeah, it's just a brilliant fight. I think, well, who do you think is going to win? It's tough. I mean, Danny Flex has done the Boxing News preview in the magazine. We won't tell you who he's gone for. I mean, my first instinct was 
Martinez, but it's one of those fights where if you kind of you know, yeah, do a little bit of investigation, you can certainly make a case for Cotto. I think the interesting thing for me is is that Martinez was starting to look his age in his last fight, which was over a year ago now against Martin Murray um, in his hometown, um, sorry, in his, his home country, uh, Argentina. Um, he's had some injury niggles for quite a while now. Very often, some time out the ring, this amount of time, sorting the injuries out, we can see you know, a fighter, not quite as good as new, but we certainly see the improvement for the timeout. Do you think that will be the case with Martinez or will it be the opposite? Will it just be too much time out of the ring, as it can be sometimes with, with, with older fighters? I just don't know. But I just I, I I do think because he's had injury problems in his last fight with his last fight was Martin Murray, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Which was a while ago. So what he what fractured his hand, yeah. the same the knee problem against Chavez Jr. in the last round, his knee went he's what, thirty nine going on forty and knees are not the kind of thing pretty, yeah they're pretty injured. useful yeah no <laughs> yeah and also I think not that I'm a great expert on knee injuries but I think once they're injured it's very easy for them to go again if, if it's a meniscus mm. thing meniscus doesn't grow back so I just my, it, my sort of hunch and it's just a hunch is that those knee injuries are going to be a problem especially under the pressure under the lights with that crowd roaring Cotto on um, so I, I think that is a problem and the timeout might help, but he's had, he's had to build himself back up, you know, from, well, he described it himself in 24 seven as like he was down to 10% yeah, function, yeah. you know, his level was at 10%. So that's a, a long way to come back. So I think, you know, I think that might be a problem and I think Cotto can take advantage of that. Okay, so prediction time. You've got a cheeky fiver. Bear in mind you get the best value in boxing if you bet on a specific round or a specific result as opposed to just a winner. You've got a cheeky fiver for this fight. Where are you laying it? Cotto Martinez. Yeah. Uh, for Martinez's knee to pop in the 10th round... <laughs> And Cotto to force the stoppage after two minutes and 17 seconds. Okay, you heard it here. We'll finish with that. Miguel, Miguel Cotto out. will make history at two minutes and 17 seconds, did you say? Of the 10th round, shortly after <laughs> Martinez's his knee has popped. We'll be back Wait, next. What's your, what's your prediction? Uh, we want mine. Yeah. Um, I think Martinez will... Stop Cotto in eight rounds. Time? Three minutes. <laughs> Interesting. Mm. Okay, make of that what you will. For the record, I wouldn't actually put my cheeky fiver on that. On what? On the particular bet. No, as in, I, sorry, not my cheeky fiver. I, if I had a fiver, I wouldn't bet it on that. Okay. I'd probably buy two lattes. Oh, yeah, you probably would. You probably would. Okay, um, whereas I would probably buy a pint of Stella. Way. <laughs> okay, right, let's, let's call it a day. We'll be back um, next week. 
Um, not sure if um, Tris will be back from New York then or not. Um, I think he. I think he should be. I think he mentioned last week that he would be, um, and he will have plenty of stories, of course, um, from the Hall of Fame because uh, Joe Calzaghe, Oscar De La Hoya, and Felix Trinidad all being inducted. So, massive weekend in New York, and we will speak to you again next time. Thanks ever so much for listening.